Oh, that is exciting. Praise the Lord. Be praying. Keep praying about that. We as leaders, I'm talking about all of us as pastoral staff, elders. Oh, man, we need your prayers. Need your prayers. What I want to do this morning is I want to continue our theme that we have been on. Started two weeks ago in this focused time of seeking the face of God. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is the verse that has really been the theme verse for this series. This time of a focused corporate seeking of God's face. Jesus gives a great promise in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want to dive into that idea further this morning. This truth about the promise given here in Acts 1.8. And here's what I want to do. Here's the way I want to approach it. Let me paint a picture for you just to help uh, visualize or illustrate how we're going to come at this. I want to take a ship and have us pile onto it and to sail across the sea of truth in the book of Acts this morning that we would sail across these waters of truth and chart our course to three distinct islands on the sea. Now, let me just say something about an island. What is obvious about an island apparent, but then I want to make a connection to it. Three general characteristics about islands. Number one, they're distinct. An island rises out of the water, out of the sea, with a very distinct topography. Secondly, an island is solid. As contrasted to the undulating, the shifting surface of the water, the changes an island is a solid land mass. It's a place where you can pull your ship up to find a harbor in, throw anchor down, get some firm ground under your feet. Thirdly, an island is fixed. An island has a fixed set of coordinates on a map, a longitude and a latitude, and it stays at that fixed coordinate. Now, when you are sailing a large open sea, it's very helpful to know what the fixed locations are of those islands because here's what you can do. If you know what the fixed coordinates of an island are, you can then, by virtue of your relationship to the island, you can determine where you're at, right? And the more of those islands that you have charted on your map, the better able you're going to be to locate your precise position and secondly, to determine what direction you need to head. Now, with that in mind, 
about an island or about islands. I want to show you the illustration related to what we're going to pursue this morning as we sail out upon the sea of the book of Acts. What we are looking for are distinct, solid, fixed truths related to the promise that Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where he said that he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. I want to look for distinct, solid, fixed truth. Truth that as we chart our way to one island and then to the next and then to the next, truth that will rise out of the surface of the water with a very defined topography, a very distinct shape. A truth, truths that will be solid, that we can stand upon and have them hold us up, that can be used as an anchor that we can, when we need to throw our ship's anchor down and found, find a solid ground. And then truth that is fixed. Truth that changes not. Truth that is the same regardless of who visits the island. It stays the same truth. There are some truths related to the promise of Acts 1.5. Jesus saying that he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. There are some distinct, solid, fixed truths related to that that I believe will help us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see if we have the time here this morning to sail the three islands. Here's the first island. Let me, let me give it a name. I'm calling it the island of what? Island of what? If you title the island in the form of a question, here would be the question. What is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. As we begin to chart our course toward the first island, let's see what rises out of the water, the body of truth in Acts that will help us get an idea of the answer to this question, what? What is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? What I want to do in exploring that answer is I want to show you the different phrases that are given here in the book of Acts to explain or define the what. The first two are given in the promise before the fulfillment ever takes place. Acts chapter 1 verse 5 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 5, the phrase is that I've repeated several times already, Jesus' promise that his followers would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then three verses later, the very same promise, Jesus is identifying the very same promise, but he uses a different 
descriptive phrase. He says that you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So now we have two phrases to describe one promise. One is being baptized with the Spirit. The second is the Holy Spirit coming upon a person or a group. Now let's go to the actual beginning of the fulfillment. See what other phrases are used. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is the beginning record that Luke gives of Jesus Christ fulfilling this promise that he had made. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, that when the promise was fulfilled, this is what happened. They were all filled, talking about the believers there at Jerusalem, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There we have phrase number three, talking about the very same promise. It's the fulfillment of Acts 1.5 and Acts 1.8. So we have three phrases now. Later in chapter 2, Peter gives us a fourth phrase. Peter, having had the Holy Spirit fill him, he stands up to preach. Preach to a massive crowd of thousands that had heard the disturbance that it talks about in Acts 2, 1 through 4 and had come to see what had taken place. And Peter extemporaneously filled with the Spirit, stands up and he begins to preach. And he explains to those that had no idea what was going on, what was happening. And in his explanation, he quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. There's another phrase for the same promise. Now we have four. Peter then, later in the chapter, gives yet another description as he comes to the end of his message. 3,000 people are impacted and Peter is giving them instruction on what they need to do based upon the truth, how they need to apply it. And he says in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Fifth phrase, the gift. And then there's one additional phrase used to describe the promise. Given in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. The scenario is this. Peter is at the house of Cornelius a non-Jew, through a series of events. God has led him there to go preach the message of Jesus to Cornelius and his household. And while Peter was preaching, listen to what happened, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Same promise. Different phrase to describe. So we have six. Distinct phrases. And that's not the only time those six are used. They are used uh, a variety of times, some more than others. But the point being, all six of them 
are given to describe the very same promise, the promise of Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that's the first description. The other five are the Holy Spirit coming upon believers. Number three, the believers being filled with the Spirit. Number four, God pouring out His Spirit. Number five, believing believers receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And number six, the Holy Spirit falling upon believers. Six phrases to describe one promise. Now, I give you that. That was very helpful to me. Very helpful to me. When I spent the time to really research that out and try to gather all of those terms, the purpose is not to make a catalog list here. But I had been confused because I had been taught, I know at times, had read information, had heard descriptions, terminologies used that were not precise terminologies. A common phrase was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We say, well, Brad, that's the same phrase you've just been stating. It's not. It's not. That's really important to somebody particularly in my profession, but just the way that I'm wired, there's a great difference between the baptism of the Spirit and the promise of Jesus that He would baptize with the Spirit. I spent a considerable amount of time two weeks ago trying to explain that difference in detail. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you, you can get a tape of that or get online or... Um, get a listen to an, a podcast of that that explains and shows the distinction that John began his ministry making that he would baptize with water under repentance for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Said multiple times in the Gospels. And then Jesus opens up in Acts 1.5 making the same distinction. And then throughout Acts, over and over and over again, that same distinction is highlighted, spotlighted. So the difference is, one is the baptism that the Holy Spirit performs, the baptism of the Spirit. The other is the baptism that Jesus Christ performs when he baptizes an individual with the Spirit. Now, that may to you seem like a ridiculous parsing of terms there, but boy, it, I believe, has caused, been the source of a lot of confusion related to the subject. So I spent the time to show you the six phrases all used interchangeably to define the one promise, just to try to, again, solidify a couple of facts, and that is that this is distinct from 
the Spirit of God baptizing a believer into the Lord Jesus Christ. Different from that. Now let me say this very plainly as I begin here. I've done this two or three times when I've preached on this topic. I did this two weeks ago, but I want to be clear. Every believer, every person that has been saved has the Spirit of God. You cannot be saved if you don't have the Spirit of God, period. Acts made that statement unarguable when he wrote in Romans chapter 8 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of Christ. I mean, it's either you have the Spirit as a believer or you don't have the Spirit as a non-believer. There is no believer that does not have the Spirit. It's an impossibility. The way that works is that the Spirit of God is the one that takes the atonement of Jesus Christ, the work that Jesus Christ performs, and that when you put your faith in Jesus at the moment of justification, at the moment of salvation, the Spirit does what it talks about in Corinthians 12. He baptizes you into Jesus Christ. That's the one baptism into one body. That's the moment of salvation where the Spirit of God does the work of baptizing you into Jesus. That's justification. That is not what we're talking about here. And not only does the Spirit baptize a believer into Jesus Christ, but The Spirit also remains with every believer as a deposit, as a seal, guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing their sonship or daughtership with God, joint heir with Christ. So again, please hear what I'm saying. Every believer has the Spirit of God. Every time cannot be any other way. But that is a distinct truth from what I am pointing out here. So these six phrases meant to, used interchangeably to describe this one promise, indicate, help this island of truth rise out of the water and become distinct and Fixed and solid. And that is that Jesus Christ wants to, has promised to, and wants to pour out, whatever terminology you want to use there, pour out, cause the Spirit to fall upon, to baptize you with, to fill you with His Spirit. He's so adamant about it. He said to his followers when he gave the promise, don't you leave Jerusalem. Don't you start the great commission that I have given until you receive the promise. He knew that if they did not receive that, there was no hope for them to accomplish what he had told them to do. 
There are so many other evidences that I could give for that need. Just go to Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus receive at the beginning of his ministry? As John baptized him with water, what was seen by John and described in the gospel? There was a dove that came down from heaven and lighted on him, representing the Holy Spirit. There was the anointing there of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, shortly after that, stood up in Nazareth at the synagogue and said, open to Isaiah and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to preach the good news and bring freedom to the captives and sight to the blind. So I would just say this. If Jesus needed it. If Jesus Christ. Needed the anointing. Of the Spirit of God for His ministry. How about you and I as followers of Christ? Let's go to the second island now and see what will rise out of the surface and become distinct and solid and fixed truth that we can depend upon. I'm going to call this the island. Well, we called the last one the island of what? This could be the island of why. If you want a different term, you could call it the island of purpose. Here's the question. What is the purpose of being filled with the Spirit? What is the purpose of Jesus baptizing you with the Spirit? Having the Spirit poured out upon you. I'm going to give this to you really quickly because I want to spend the rest of the time on the third island. But I think this one will be pretty apparent. Two verses. John chapter 16. First of all, John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus describing to his followers before his crucifixion that he was going to send the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit would do when he came. Here is the answer to the question of why. John 15, 26, but when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. That's what he's going to do when he comes, Jesus said. John chapter 16, verse 14, referring again to the Holy Spirit, talking to the same followers, he said, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Two things here. That the work of the Spirit of God in this world today, within the human race today, is to glorify and testify to the person of Jesus Christ. That what the Spirit is doing right now is that He is working to glorify and to testify to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, He does a lot of other stuff. A lot of functions and roles that he performs. He's the healer. He's the counselor. He's the spirit of truth. He's the one that corrects and the one that directs. But all of those fit within the the overall truth that what he's here to do is to glorify and testify to the person of Jesus Christ. That is very clear and distinct and fixed and solid in Scripture. 
So how does that help us then? Why go to that island? What does that do for us in our understanding of this baptism with or the outpouring of or the filling of the Spirit? Well, it should tell us this. Both for others and for ourselves. If anyone claiming to be filled with working under the power of the Spirit does any type of activity or ministry that detracts from or competes with or doesn't set the spotlight on to glorify and testify to the person of Jesus Christ, you can be sure it's not what the Spirit is doing. Because what the Spirit is doing is to glorify and to testify to the person of Jesus Christ. You can be sure if someone operating under the claimed leadership and power of the Spirit is bringing the attention upon themselves, that is, that is not the work and the prompting and the power of the Spirit. Because what the Spirit is doing is glorifying Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. He's testifying to Jesus. Okay, now let's go to the third island. And here is where we will get off the boat. Walk through the surf. Squish our toes in the sand. And get some supplies for the ship. The third island, I'm going to call the island of effect. Effect. Here's the question. What takes place when the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer? What takes place? What is the result when an individual is baptized with the Spirit? Has the Spirit poured out upon them, receives the gift of any one of those phrases that you want to use that are interchangeable. Let's see what rises out of the surface as a distinct topography of truth. What is solid and fixed. I'm going to make a statement to start with. just to state what I believe the truth is, and then I'm going to show you example after example after example that validate this. Here is the statement. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is experienced by discernible evidences, not simply inferred by logical deduction. Let me say that one more time. That the reality, the evidence, the proof that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon an individual is proven by noticeable, discernible, external evidences, not simply by a logical conclusion based upon another truth believed. For example, from the negative side, 
there is a segment of the evangelical church that has been taught. The period of my upbringing, I was taught this, various times read this, that the way that you know the evidence that you have received this gift of the Spirit is that you know it because you know that you're saved. That you infer it. If you know that you've placed your faith in Christ, then you can logically infer deductively that then you have also received this gift of the Spirit. And I believe that has come because of a misunderstanding, uh, not seeing the distinction that John makes and that Jesus makes and that Acts makes time and time again about the difference between this baptism of John under repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the baptism that Jesus performs when he baptizes a person with the Spirit. So let's look at the examples. We're just going to, we're going to try fairly quickly now to go through Acts and I'm going to show you every example in Acts in which the explicit description is given about the Holy Spirit being poured out or uh, filling or coming upon and what the text describes as the external visible evidences of that. First one is in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Here is the initial fulfillment of the promise. I'm going to read verses 2 and verse 11. Here is what happened to those 120 believers. Luke wrote that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 11. Here's what the people that... The bystanders, the audience said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Two external, discernible, visible evidences here about the Spirit of God coming down upon these people. And it's these two. First of all, they were given the ability to speak in a tongue they did not previously know. And secondly... They were inspired with this profusion of praise that just burst forth in them as they extolled and spoke about the greatness and the wonder of God. Two very discernible evidences. I think... There is another one clearly implied when you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is Peter finishing his sermon, his extemporaneous sermon, standing up in the moment, preaching just an incredibly powerful, biblically saturated accurate message about Jesus Christ. And in Acts 2.37, here is what happened to the audience. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's evidence right there that Peter is operating under the power of the Holy Spirit because when he speaks, 3,000 people say, what do I need to do to be saved? Tell me, I believe in what you're saying. So the evidence here is a bold, courageous, powerful proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ to such an effect that the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in a moment. Now, what does that sound like that fits perfectly within? It fits perfectly within the promise. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. All three of those evidences fit perfectly within that promise that Acts 1.8 begins with. In fact, I believe the way to read Acts is to go to the promise in Acts 1.8 and see it as the big idea, the great truth of the book and then Follow from Acts 1.8 into example after example after example of descriptions of the fulfillment of that promise. Time and time and time again. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. Peter is being questioned by the Jewish leaders. He had performed an incredible healing. And... The Jewish leaders were jealous and they are trying to shut him up from speaking in the name of Jesus. Remember, this is the Jewish leaders that have power. It's not just some committee that operates over in the dark. They they are the power brokers of Jerusalem, of the Jews. They are the ones that secured the very death of Christ. And remember, Peter, he's the one that ran. He's the one that denied. He's the one that fled. He's the one that promised it all and delivered nothing. And so he's standing now before them in Acts 4, 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them a little bit later, Let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I mean, do you see the bold courage and the aggressive witness to the person of Jesus Christ? Do you see the exaltation, the glory of Christ here? What is happening is that The Spirit of God is using Peter to glorify and testify to the person of Jesus Christ. What's happening here is Acts 1.8. Power to witness. Peter had changed. He was filled with the Spirit and he changed. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, you see the religious leaders So Peter and John, you stop preaching about the name of Jesus Christ. We command you to stop. They went right back to the church. They reported what the leaders had said, the threats and the commands. 
And here is what the church did. Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were meeting, actually, I need to read a verse prior to that. They asked that God would stretch forth his hand and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of his holy servant, Jesus, and that he would enable them to speak the word with great boldness. That was their prayer. And here is what happened as a result of their prayer, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Even in the midst of these great threats, here's the external evidence of the filling of the Spirit. Again, it is a bold proclamation for Jesus Christ, even to the threatening of their own life. Undeniable evidence. Go to Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen. Stephen has already been identified as a man who was full of the Spirit. He preaches a message because he is now being interrogated. He is now being persecuted by the Jewish leaders for his proclamation. In fact, he was so powerful of a speaker, it says that they could not stand up against the Spirit or the wisdom with which he spoke. I mean, he just laid them out with his power and his logic and his testimony to Jesus Christ so that what they eventually did is they drag him out of the city. They stop their ears so they can't hear, you know, you know, the kid does, right? So they could try to keep his words from getting to them, powerful words. And they begin to stone him. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Let me give you a visible, external, undeniable evidence here. It is a revelation of God, the Spirit of God. One of the things that He does when He fills, when He is poured out, is He comes upon a believer and He helps them to see God in a clearer, greater way than they have ever seen Him before. We had a testimony to that very thing Wednesday night. Incredible testimony in the midst of just the lowest spot that this individual could get in life that the Spirit of God came upon him and in an instant revealed God to him in infinitely greater ways than he had ever known him before in an instant. Here, Stephen is filled with the Spirit and he sees this incredible revelation of God and of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? I submit to you that it's Acts 1.8. He is powerfully testifying to the glory and the person, the identity of Jesus Christ. 
go to Acts chapter 8. This is the apostles in Samaria. Here's what happens in Samaria. Philip, a man already identified earlier in Acts as being one that is full of the Spirit, he goes to Samaria and he preaches. And here's the message that he preaches. He preaches the message of the kingdom of God, quote, and the good news of Jesus Christ. He's preaching the gospel. And it says that the people of Samaria believed in the message. And they followed that belief, it says a couple verses later, by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the gospel, they sent Peter and John to investigate. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. They had believed the good news of Jesus Christ and had been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And then the apostles came and noticed something. They realized through dialogue and a little probing that there was no external evidence of the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And so they prayed for them that they might receive. They're praying for people who had already believed. And they placed their hands on them and they received. So the question, if there was no evidence before, which caused the apostles to recognize it so that they would pray for the Holy Spirit to fill, was there evidence following that filling? Look at the next verse. Now when Simon, verse 18, Simon was a sorcerer. Simon was the practicer of the black magic, magical uh, arts there in Samaria. He knew about the spiritual realm, but his information was related to the demonic. But it says, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. He wanted to have the same power to be able to place his hands on somebody and pray that they would receive. But the, I not want to go off track here. I want to stick on the purpose here. What I'm pointing out to you is that Simon saw the evidence. It doesn't tell us here what the evidence was, but it clearly tells us that there was visible, discernible, external evidence because even this man, Simon, not just one of the mature apostles, this was Simon who had been the sorcerer. He sees, wow, there is something that takes place here that is out of this world greater than anything I've ever done. Go to Acts chapter 9. 
Saul and Ananias. Here's a setup. Saul's on the road to Damascus. He is enemy number one of the Christian church. He is carrying letters of authority and a heart of zeal to go and persecute and imprison and kill followers of Jesus in Damascus. In in route on his task, he runs into the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ who knocks him from his horse, blinds him with a light brighter than the noonday sun, calls him by name, identifies his sin. I'm going to jump ahead in the story now. We'll come back to that in a minute. He is led into Damascus blind. And three days into that blindness, there's a man by the name there in, in Damascus named Ananias who the Lord says, I want you to go over to this certain house and I want you to pray for a man by the name of Saul. He's seen in the vision that you're going to come and pray for him. And so Ananias knows who Saul is and he has a little bit of an argument with the Lord. And he loses the argument and goes. And when he gets there, here's what happened. I'm going to read Acts 9, 17, 20, and 22. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. And immediately Paul began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God, verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. First of all, evidences of the filling. I'd submit to you that the evidence, again, is Acts 1.8. How in the world other than by the divine ability of the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God, could Saul go from enemy number one of Christ to preacher number one of Christ immediately? Only through the power of the Spirit of God could that happen. And that is exactly what happened. And immediately he began preaching boldly, courageously to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, remember, this is the guy that three days earlier had hate in his heart and blood on his hands. He is now standing in the Jewish center, in the synagogue, proclaiming with force and with power and with zeal the very one he was trying to wipe the name out of a few days earlier. That's evidence, folks. That's undeniable evidence of the power of the Spirit of God. So powerful that he was able to go to the Old Testament. Now, he knew the Old Testament. He was an incredible student of the Old Testament. But what he was able to do immediately in the synagogues is that he was able to go to the Old Testament and just 
unfold a storyline there. The storyline related to the Messiah, the great promise the Jew was waiting for, and show situation after situation. It's Jesus. Here's the proof. It's Jesus. Here's the proof. It's Jesus. Here's the proof. That's an evidence of the power of the Spirit of God. That's Acts 1.8 in vivid living color. Peter and Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. I can't, I'm running out of time here. I can't give much of the setup. Just that Peter got a vision from God, was told to go to Cornelius' house, a Jew, a non-Jew. And through a series of events, God revealed to him that he was going to expand his understanding of the gospel and who it was for. And so Peter enters into Cornelius' house and begins to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10, 44 and 46. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Verse 46. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Evidence. Speaking in tongues and extolling God. Giving praise to God. Glorifying God. What does that sound like? Sounds like Acts 1 8. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Paul travels through Ephesus. He meets 12, quote, believers. And he must have noticed something missing in them because he asks them the question in verse 2 of chapter 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Please hear those words carefully. Did you receive when you? When you believed. Did you receive when you believed? He is implying his belief that they truly are followers of Jesus Christ, which they had been called in verse 1 already. And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul, I'm not sure everything that he said to them, it doesn't give much information here. But in verse 6, here is what it says. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, on who? On these believers. When he had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. What are the evidences here? Undeniable, unmistakable. It is speaking in tongues and prophecy. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, what are the conclusions that we can draw from these outpourings of the Spirit? I think there are three. At least three. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, that the evidences of the Spirit falling upon, filling, a person being baptized with, coming upon, a person receiving the gift, all those interchangeable terms, that the evidences given are varied. V-A-R-I-E-D. Meaning, There are consistencies, general witnessing taking place, but they are varied. 
There are a lot of different ones given. I could even add to the list that I gave you in the, in the verses that don't speak specifically about an outpouring, but about those who were filled and how they performed miracles and signs and wonders as evidence. So there's a lot of evidences given. They're varied. But here's the second truth that we can say with equal confidence that no one specific action, no one specific evidence is given every time. There is not one thing that happens every time that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon an individual or upon a group of people. Because there was not one thing consistently stated in every one of those accounts. Now, I think those are just precursor, though. Here's the main thought that I'm wanting to develop here. This third truth is this, that emerges very plainly in my mind. That all of these accounts about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit included external evidences that were known by the people that acted them out. Visible, discernible, recognizable evidences of the filling of the Spirit. Now, in addition to that, in my mind, being of an unmistakable truth in looking at Every instance in where the explicit um, examples are given of the Spirit being poured out and what happened in those, every one of those in Acts we looked at. We didn't leave any out. That, to me, gives strong evidence. But there are a few more. Some of them are the same scenario or story, but the way it develops it even makes it stronger I want to show you three of them that make it a point to identify the missing component that actually emphasize that the individuals that believed did not have this, had not received this outpouring. First one is Peter and John in Samaria. They arrived, remember, they arrived, they had heard the preaching of Philip, believed and been baptized, but Peter and John arrived, and in 15 and 16, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And here's the emphasis, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Luke, the precise great historian of history, is using divinely inspired words for a purpose. He is highlighting and pointing out what was missing for a reason. Ananias and Saul. Here's the second one. Ananias and Saul. Remember the story? 
Saul is knocked down on the road to Damascus. He goes blindly into Damascus three days later. Ananias shows up. And in chapter 9, verse 17, here is what Ananias says to him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see again the precise historian, the great Dr. Luke, is pointing out that Saul had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, how did Ananias know that? Did he do some interrogation with Paul? Paul, what was the evidence? No, none of that is included here. He got it directly from the Lord himself who told him, go Pray for Saul that he would receive his sight and be filled with the Spirit, i.e., he's not. So here comes the question. How do we interpret that? Was Paul saved? Was Saul saved on the Damascus road? Or did he get saved when Ananias came? Well, I would say, first of all, that Ananias didn't say to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me to you so that I may pray for you that you would receive your sight and preach to you about the good news of Jesus Christ so you can accept him as your Savior. Okay, it doesn't say that. It's very specific. It's very precise. It says, I came here directed by the Lord to pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Can we answer then whether Paul was saved? Saul, I mean, his name hasn't been changed yet. Saul, whether Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. I think if we look closely and listen carefully, it is undeniable. Because this very man himself, the great apostle Paul, is the one that wrote the letter that we spent a couple of years walking through, the letter to the church at Rome. And in the 8th chapter, or in the 10th chapter of that letter, Here's what the great Apostle Paul wrote with his own pen. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two qualifications the Apostle gave there. And they were confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let's see what happened on the road to Damascus when Saul had an encounter with the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. He is middle of the day, riding on his horse. He's knocked to the ground as the resurrected, glorified Christ appears. He is humbled there. He is blinded by the glory of Christ. And Jesus calls his name Saul, Saul, and then he identifies his sin. Why are you persecuting me? And here is Saul's response. Who are you? What does he say? Lord, who are you? Capital L-O-R-D. Let me translate that. Who are you? 
Jehovah. Who are you? Yahweh, the God that I thought that I knew. Who are you? I know you're God. There is no question. He called him Lord. So in that moment, Saul confessed with his mouth that Jesus was Lord. And then Jesus, in response to Saul's question, who are you, Lord? Jesus introduced himself and he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, i.e., the man that was nailed to the cross outside of Jerusalem a few weeks back, a few months back. I'm the one that you know all about his death and that he was taken down and that he was buried and put in a sealed tomb. That one that died. Listen, I am he. Here's what then we know that we know that we know. Is that in that moment, Saul realized that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He had just met him in all of his glory and splendor there on the road to Damascus. So Saul had confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that God had raised him from the dead. I submit to you, he was saved. And for three days, every paradigm in his life was going through a radical transformation. Everything he thought that he knew, all of his great learning in the Scriptures. I mean, what else did he have to think about? He's sitting there blind. And then Ananias comes and says, Brother Saul, I'm here so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit and the external evidences take place. And then finally, that example in Acts chapter 19. Notice how poignant it is right here, this focus, this emphasis that Luke makes upon something missing. Paul finds the 12 believers, he sees something, and he asks them the question, did you receive, in Acts 19, 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I've read, folks, I have, this, uh, this is not any kind of a claim toward inerrancy. I'm just telling you, that this has been a, understanding this stuff has been a quest of mine for a number of years. I have spent dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of hours researching this stuff out. Reading every angle and praying over the text and. I know that some take this and say, well, what Saul was, what 
Paul was really asking, it was a way to try to find out if they were truly saved. So he kind of came around the shed from the backside. You know, if you received, then that would mean that you truly did believe. Well, here's the problem with that. It's not what he said. I mean, it's not what he said. He said, did you receive when you believed? What I found in my history was that I had to take a lot of verses and do just what I was explaining there to them to fit it into my previous understanding. I had to try to tweak it and massage it to make it fit. But what it says here is very plain. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That tells me a few things. You can believe without receiving. Now, again, stop right there. I don't mean that you can believe unto salvation and not have the Spirit. You can't be saved without the Spirit. But you can believe and not have this outpouring, this baptized with, this those six different descriptions that we've looked at. That is possible for you to believe and not have experienced this. So that by every example described and given in Acts, and by those three that are so um, intentional about pointing out the void, here is the truth that seems undeniable to me, that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon a follower of Christ, upon a person, upon a group of people, will come with discernible evidence. Not one thing always true, a variety of things, and in fact, God can do whatever He wants to do, but it's going to line up with His truth. It's going to line up with the idea of glorifying and testifying to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to fit with the promise of Acts 1.8. Application. Having seen, looking at that island of effect, it rising out of the water with a defined topography, solid ground, fixed coordinates, truth that is solid and the same. As you look at those coordinates, does it help you to evaluate where you're at related to that truth? Can you evaluate your life and say that there is discernible evidence that I'm aware of that indicates to me that the Spirit of God has been poured out upon me? Is there 
bold proclamation for the person of Jesus Christ in my life. Even in the face of opposition, is there miraculous powers or gifts operating that just give strong testimony to the person of Christ? Is there revelation that he has given me, revealing to me God and God's glory is just in a moment in ways that I had never understood before? Is there the ability to speak in an unknown language or to prophesy or a profusion of praise that comes out of my heart just overflowing? I can't hardly even contain it. Or whatever other evidences, the varied evidences of the Spirit of God. Do you see that in your life? I see potentially another that I didn't list. It's given in one scripture. It says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe Him. Is there great evidence of you being able to resist temptation and walk in the truth of God? with a power that you know is not you. Where you at? I want to pray a prayer for myself and over and for you as a body. Would you please stand? Church, I submit to you that because of such strong evidence repetitively given here in Scripture, I submit to you that it is that it is okay for you if you have not received an outpouring of the Spirit, it's okay for you to pursue that. And I'm going to take that a step further. I submit to you that this is given by divine inspiration so that you would want to pursue it. so that your heart would be moved and compelled. Not so that you could enjoy some fanatic experience. But so that you could give powerful testimony to the glory, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the setting in Acts. And if that comes through an incredible experience, so be it. But the experience is not the purpose, the testimony, the witness, the glorification of Christ is the purpose. 
But what I'm saying is I believe God put it here because he wants us to want what he wants for us. And Jesus wants to give us the promise. I am concerned that we have two camps in evangelical Christianity. And I used to be over on one pendulum swing. That we have two camps. One camp, the conservative camp, they are so afraid of what they have seen or heard about in the way of sensationalism or fanaticism that they run clear over to the far extreme in the other direction. And they say, when you get saved, you get all the spirit that you're ever going to get. There is no more. And when you try to talk to me about it, I'm resisting that truth. They actually resist the spirit of God and what he wants to do in them. And then there are those over on the extreme far side of the Pentecostal camp that add to what is written. That add things that go beyond and therefore conflict with what is written. Or that they look for the experience for the sake of the experience instead of for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And both of those extremes are wrong. Now, I have an idea that probably the greater danger in our church is over here on the extreme conservative branch. That we would be resistant to what the Spirit of God wants to do because we are afraid of the unknown, afraid of the abuse. And what I believe is that it is abuse as well to resist. That both of those are abuse. And what we need is to try to find, and that's what I'm trying to help you with as your pastor, try to find a biblical balance between those two extremes to where we stay grounded in the Word of God. We make sure that what we get for truth comes solidly out of the Word of God. And that we let God be God as He said in His Word that He wants to do. And if that means the performing of signs and wonders and miracles and the profusion of praise and things that we're not used to, that He's God. And we need to get rid of the boxes and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want Your promise. You give me what You want. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I do that right now. But pray for me first. I ask you to fill me with your spirit. 
pour your spirit out upon me. Baptize me with your spirit. Let your spirit come upon me. Let me receive the gift of your spirit. So that in ways far exponentially greater than has been the case that you would use me to glorify and testify to the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray for this church. I pray for that same outpouring of your spirit upon us. Use us, God, for the glory of Christ. Use us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.